good to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping him. You can have a seat. Take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 1, first chapter of Ephesians. We're in the middle of a series that I'm titling Resolute, and we're going to be taking up our offerings. So if you could just be passing those buckets, and we'll do that. Resolute, determined to live like a disciple. Is anybody here a resolute person? Are you determined? That's what we're talking about. <clears throat> I, need, I need some volunteers before we get into Ephesians 1. I need four men and five women. I'll be the fifth man. So where's, where's my five women? Would you just stand where you are? Stand, five women. You don't have to come out of your chair or anything. I'm waiting for five. We don't go any further unless there's five people standing up. There we go. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, put a little threat in that, and all of a sudden it's like, thank you. How about the men? I need four other men. Stand where your feet, where you're sitting, where you're, where you're sitting. Stand where you are. Four men. I'll be the fifth man. There we go. There we go. Awesome. All right, I need you to give to us your most intense, most determined posture of a resolute person, of a re Give me, give it to us. Are you ready? Are you ready? Everybody go. All right, here we go. Here we go. Oh, man, some of you guys are lame. Come on, do something. Is that it? That's all you got? You can sit down. I need determined people here. Don't walk in fear, church. It's okay. I'm not going to humiliate anybody. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to continue this series with you. We're going to look at verses 3 down to verse 14. And I've titled this section of Scripture, Happiness, Happiness. Would you consider yourself a happy person? So that's the title. There's a word that begins verse 3, and it's the word blessed. Do you see that word there? It's blessed. The Greek word for that is eulagio. I think it's on the screen. There it is, eulagio. And so it means to speak well of. Now, if you went to a funeral, right, and a pastor or priest or someone got up to speak, they would speak well of the person who is deceased, and that would be called a what? A eulogy. So Paul starts the section by saying, blessed, or I'm going to speak well of God. It's a wonderful word. It begins a section of scripture that we need to look at because Paul wants to speak well of his God and he wants the Ephesian believers to also speak well of their God. The word can also mean to make happy, to make happy. Let me show you a couple of verses where this word is used. It's in Acts chapter three, verse 26. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. There it is, eulogio. That's the word. He's going to make you happy. So we have speak well of God. We also have to make someone happy. They both go together all through the section of Scripture we're going to look at that we worship the Lord, but the Lord does want you to be happy. Here's another verse. Galatians 3.9 with the same word. So then those who are of faith are what? Are blessed. They're eulogio. They're happy. Those are happy people. Christians should be happy people. If you want a good book on happiness, and quite frankly, uh, Christians have rejected the whole notion that Christians ought to be happy. 
and they say things like this. Well, we need to be holy. God doesn't call us to happiness. No, he calls us to happiness too. Read Randy Alcorn's book. It's just titled Happiness, if you want to read a good book on the title. And he goes through the history of why the Christian church has rejected this teaching that we should be happy people. Verse 3, Paul says this. I want you to look at the text with me. He mentions spiritual blessings. We could call this spiritual happiness. So when you see eulagio, you're seeing blessedness, you're seeing blessings, you're seeing speak well of, and you're also seeing to make happy. But notice he's talking about spiritual blessings. Now there's a real problem with that because a lot of times we want material blessings. That's how we're conditioned as human beings. We want it now and we want things that are material in nature. But Paul's saying there's spiritual blessings, verse 3. Humans are in search of happiness. They really are. They want happiness. It's hard to achieve. Can I ask you again, are you a happy person? When you look into the mirror, can you honestly say back to yourself, you're a happy person? What makes someone happy? Is it health? Is it a house? Is it having a nice job? What is happiness? Is it winning the lottery? You're thinking, oh, man, that would make me happy if I won the lottery. Every time I go by that big billboard on 422, does anybody ever check that billboard that's going out towards the, and it, it, I mean, it gets pretty high, you know, millions and millions of dollars, and you're thinking to yourself, boy, if I could just win that, I'd be happy. You know, studies show that two months after someone wins the lottery, they're, they go back to baseline happiness. In other words, it spikes, right? You win. Two months later, it drops right back down to, to normal because they discover really that a million dollars isn't going to make you happy. So what is it? Is it beauty? What makes you happy? Is it intelligence? Is it having good close friends? Studies abound. And if you were to do a, a research on this, Google it, you'll see that scholars and philosophers down through the centuries have tried to determine what makes a person actually happy. Have you ever asked yourself that? I know through the years of my Christian life, I have said to myself, I'm not very happy. I'm not very happy. What is that, Lord? It reminds me of the story of a young girl who was sitting and watching her mother do the dishes. She suddenly noticed that her mother had several strands of white hair sticking out in contrast to her brunette hair. She looked at her mother and asked, why are some of your hairs white, Mom? Mother replied, well, every time that you do something wrong makes me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. The little girl thought for a while and said, Mama, how come all of Grandma's hair is white? <laughs> I don't know about you, but my hair is getting white. Is that because of unhappiness? What is spiritual happiness? What is Paul talking about here? We're going to look at verses 3 down to verse 14. We're going to try to answer. There are three reasons why we can be happy. And let me just say to you, it doesn't matter your circumstances. It does not matter your circumstances. There are people in our world right now that are being killed for the Christian gospel, yet they're still happy. There are people in our world right now going through way more traumatic things that we're going through, or maybe even ever will go through, and yet they are happy because they understand the principles Paul is talking about here. And we need to grab a hold of them, quite frankly, because I really do believe that the days are coming for the Christian church in America 
where we're gonna be experiencing the same things that they're experiencing. And I don't know if the American evangelical church is gonna be ready for that. There's gonna be a massive exodus of the Christian church in America. People are gonna start flying out of here because you're just not ready. You can be happy in any circumstance. And I'm not minimizing what you're going through. We all have been through the dark night of the soul. We've all been through what Job would say, that life is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. But we can still be happy. Are you with me on this? Are you ready to go for a journey? Here's three. Here's three reasons. You'll see it in selection. You'll see it in salvation. And you'll see it in succession. Number one, selection. It's in verses three down to verse six. Now, Verses three down to verse 14 is one long sentence. I don't know about you, but English class for me was just like torture. And so when I went to English class, my teacher would constantly use her red pen and she would mark my papers and she would call it a what? Run on sentence. Anybody with me on that? Did you ever have that happen to you? You guys all did well in English. You would have been the one I was sitting next to to cheat off of. Run, this is a run-on sentence. Paul goes from verse three all the way down to verse 14 in one sentence. I think he can get away with it because the Holy Spirit inspired him. He's beside himself. He's totally captured by the glories of God in and through salvation, in and through the fact that we've been selected unto eternal life. And he writes straight from verse three all the way to verse 14. It's a phenomenal section of scripture. Paul is getting a glimpse of the glories of the Lord when it comes to his great salvation. It's kind of like Edgar Mitchell, and you'll see a picture of the earth, if you could bring that up. Edgar Mitchell is an astronaut, and he said this from outer space looking back to earth, quote, my view of our planet was a glimpse of divinity. Kind of like Paul looking into the glories of salvation, especially election, and being selected by an all-wise God. It's like he's looking at this thing and he's going, this is spectacular. Here's John Glenn. He said this. There's a wonderful uh, astronaut. You're familiar with that name, probably more so than the, the one I just quoted. He said this, quote, to look out at this kind of creation out here and not believe in God is to me impossible, end quote, John Glenn. So here's Paul, and he's wanting the Ephesians to get the same kind of glimpse about what people would call election or predestination. Have you ever heard of those terms before? Have you ever pushed back on those terms? Be honest. Anybody push back on those? Just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, yes. I did, for sure. Push back on it. Uh, I was years and years ago doing some research into this for hours, and it seemed like weeks and months and years. Uh, and I pushed back on election and predestination because I really thought it was unfair I really kind of looked at the Lord and I said, Lord, this, this is not right. Uh, how could you do that? How could you choose one and not choose the other? How could you select this family member, but you're not going to select this other family member? And then I started to realize something. I started to realize that I was clay. I was just a big lump of clay. And God is the, what? The potter. Go to Romans, you'll see that. I think it's chapter nine. We've pushed back on the teachings of selection and election and predestination because in our human nature, there's so much pride and we want to be God so bad that you're gonna go into a wrestling match 
when it comes to this truth. And Paul wants to lay it out so that the Ephesians will look at that and go, this is amazing that God would select me unto eternal life. Paul's talking about spiritual happiness here, but notice the location of the spiritual happiness or blessings. It's in the heavenly places. Notice it there. It's in heavenly places. Now, why does he have to say this? Why is he talking about this? He's trying to reorient the Ephesians' mindset and perspective because what they were tending to do, when what we have a tendency to do, is also to live in this realm. We live in this earth. And what he wants them to understand when it comes to being elected or chosen or selected or predestined, you're not gonna fully grasp that. You have a finite mind and it's gonna have to be spirit empowered to be able to understand this teaching that he's gonna lay out here. But what's happening is that Christians are so living in this realm, they don't even know what it means to live in another realm. They're so used to naturalism and not so used to supernaturalism. So that is common today in our Christian culture, but it was common in Ephesus too. And so they're looking, Paul's looking at them, he's like, no, 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 you gotta go to the heavenly places. This is where we live. This is just temporary, but we actually live in another realm, heavenly places. He wants them to get a new perspective on some things. He wants them to consider this. Consider that where you live isn't really where you live. Where you live is really in a spiritual dimension. So he mentions heavenly places, a different existence, a spiritual realm, and it's only accessible, and you'll only be able to understand it by the Spirit of the Lord. So if you push back on election and predestination, Paul is saying, it's because the Spirit of the Lord, you're quenching the Spirit of the Lord. You're not filled with the Spirit of the Lord. It's gonna have to be by a revelation, by the Spirit of God, that you're gonna be able to grasp this to any degree. Now remember, you're a finite person, and you're not gonna be able to totally grasp election. So he's telling the Christians here in Ephesus about some spectacular things he goes on in these verses and he says, he chose us in him. Notice that, he chose us. That is the word ek lego. Now this is an important word. Think of Legos, right? You know what Legos are, right? Think of Lego, but then put E-K on the front of that. Now this is an important word. Ek lego means that God chose, but he chose it independent of humanity. He's working with the spirit and he's working with the son of God, but the father was choosing people Eklego, independent of humanity. That's an important word. Jesus uses it in John 6, 70 when he said to his apostles, did I not choose you? In other words, I chose you, Matthew. You didn't choose me. I chose you, Luke. You didn't choose me. Eklego. Now that one word there is a very, very important word to understand if we're gonna grasp the selection of God that he was independent in electing and choosing people for himself. Now, some people would say, well, and this is what I was taught for a lot of years, well, God saw down into history, and he saw who would choose him, and so then God chose them. That's not eklego. God was choosing people independent of humanity. 
In other words, God was the initiator. He did this. You'll notice in the text, he says, it says, before the foundation of the world. So he gives a time frame. When did he choose you? When was I chosen unto eternal life, according to the Bible? Before the foundations of the world. I don't know about you, but I wasn't around at that period of time. Were you? So that means I wasn't even in existence, but yet God chose me. You're saying, that's, that's impossible. I don't get that. I don't comprehend that. Yeah, but you're not going to comprehend it. That's the finite mind, but you'd believe it by faith because the Bible teaches that. Before the foundation, it's God's initiative. He is the one that does the choosing. The word predestined is in there. You could say it's ordained or appointed unto eternal life. That word is used in Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed, this is what it says in the scripture, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So your appointment, your choosing, your selection is actually before you're believing. Not when you first believe. It's before that. And so Paul is going to give them some truth here that's going to lead them to understand what is real spiritual happiness. It's realizing that God chose you, that God elected you. In fact, God the Father had given a people to the Son. You'll see John 17 on the screen here. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Did you know that you were actually chosen and then God the Father gave you to the Son and then the Son came and rescued you and died on a cross to save you? That's what the Bible teaches. Look at these verses here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father, 17.6, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Are you seeing that in the text? In other words, you were given by the Father to the Son, and then the Son comes, and he dies on a cross, and he's dying on a cross for you, to save you. In other words, Jesus put literally boots on the ground, and he's putting boots on the ground in history, in real history, as Francis Schaeffer would call it. He called it true truth. The true truth of the matter is that Jesus in history came, and he died on a cross, and he's dying on a cross for a people, and it's the people that the Father has given to the Son. Now watch this, because Jesus can't fail in mission. He can't fail. The Father elected you, then the mission is to Jesus to come to earth, and he's not going to fail to rescue you and save you. This is what he was doing before the foundations of the world. Paul goes on to talk about being adopted, verse 5. Do you see that word there, adopted? This is where he's our father and he selects us. He goes into this orphanage called the world and he's choosing and he chooses us. You're saying, does he choose everybody in the world? What would the answer to that be? That's a tough one to try to answer. I'll leave that up for you to try to wrestle through. But this we know, Jesus came to die for those who have been chosen by the father. And if you're in Christ, you're one of those. And if you're not in Christ, are you saying, am I chosen? I don't know. I used to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. 
Repent of your sins. Trust that he died for your sins and rose again. You see how it's hard to understand? Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all, he said that. There's two sides of this whole thing. God is electing, and then people are responding. God chooses. People repent. How do you put those two together? It's hard. It's like a railroad track. Stand on the railroad track. You look at those rails, and they go, and they go, and they're, they're parallel, right? But somewhere down there, they meet. Try that sometime, but make sure there's no train coming. That wouldn't be good. But stand there in the middle of these tracks and watch those rails, and you'll see what Spurgeon was talking about. They don't seem like they line up, but they're going to line up into eternity way down there. And we'll be like, yeah, that's what it was. So we're adopted into the family of God, not biologically, but by blood, Jesus's blood, that we should be holy, Paul said, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's number one, selection. Number two, salvation. Verses seven down to verse 10. Notice these. Paul said, in him, is this verse seven? Are you with me with your eyes on the text? Verse seven, in him, we have, what's the word there? Redemption. We have redemption. That means to buy back. Jesus is buying back. There's a payment that was made. His life was given so that our life can be saved. Jesus would die on a cross, and the scripture says here in the text, it was through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. There was a ransom that was paid, the ransom. Who kidnapped us? The devil kidnapped us. You know, 200,000 people in our country every year are kidnapped. You know, of the top 10 states where where people go missing, Pennsylvania is like number eight. The devil is a kidnapper, and he kidnapped us. And then there was a ransom to be paid, and Jesus paid the ransom with his blood. Redemption is the word. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you. There's a picture of a redemption center. I think I have that on there, if you could bring that up. And a redemption center, I've not seen any around here since I've been in Pennsylvania, but where I was from, what we would do is take all of our cans and our bottles and different things like that to a redemption center, and when I brought the, the can to them, they would give me a little bit of money. And so think of your life like that. This is your life. And then the devil comes, and through sin, and just through temptation, and through choices that you make, and through traumas, he just crushes you. And he disfigures you. And this becomes our life, and, and it's, it's tragic, and it's, it's very sad. And, and the devil enjoys every minute of doing this to your life. And then Jesus comes. He dies, and he sheds his blood for you and for me. And he restores us. We go from this broken and crushed and bruised and all of the sin and the decisions and the trauma and the trials and the things that we go through, we're like this, but Jesus comes and redeems us. The redemption center is the cross. And then we're we're made new. And inside of us, the Bible says is what? Is gonna flow what? What is it? Is Is anybody with me today? Yes, there's gonna be flow living water, and this is LaCroix. It's not quite the same as spiritual living water, but just to give the illustration, right? 
This is flowing out of us now. That's redemption. That's our salvation. We're selected and then we're saved. I was chosen before the foundations of the world, but at 19, I was saved. I experienced redemption and being redeemed and the ransom was paid for me. When was it for you? Jesus affected our salvation by his sacrifice. His blood was shed. It's all of grace. I love this little statement here in the text. It calls riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Notice it. He, the Bible says that he lavished us. Do you know what the word lavish means? Lavish is to bestow something in generous and extravagant quantities. Here's another definition of to lavish. And remember, in salvation, redemption, we are being lavished by the riches of his grace. It means sumptuously rich, elaborate or luxurious. Bring this picture up, if you would, Jenna, of this interior of this car. Now, this is lavish. This is luxurious. I mean, this car, they'll do, it'll do your dishes, it'll do your laundry, it'll do everything. It's amazing. But even more amazing than the luxury of that car is our salvation. We've been lavished, Paul says to the Ephesian Christians. Are you hearing that? Ephesian Christians, are you hearing? Are you seeing this? Are you the person now, Ephesians Christian, are you looking at from the rim and it's just a hole in the ground or are you looking into it and you're saying, wow, the mysteries of God, how he takes Jew and Gentile and he's building a people unto himself. And he's doing it through selection. He's doing it through salvation. It's phenomenal. What has been poured on top of us and in us and through us to make us who we are is just beyond words, and Paul's beyond himself from verses three down to verse 14. Here's a statement. I'm gonna to try to test your Bible knowledge for all of those who in high school, you were just so pumped up when it came time to that day where you had to give out some Bible trivia answer. So for all of those who used to do that in Christian high school, Here's a phrase, salvation is of the Lord. Who said that and what book is it in? Does anybody know? Salvation is of the Lord. We all went to public school. I knew there was something to that. Jonah said that. That's from Jonah. Now, why would Jonah, from the Holy Spirit inspiring him, say salvation is of the Lord? Well, what happened to Jonah? Where did he end up? He ended up in the belly of a whale. And so, now think about this. This isn't just a story that is just to make kids go, wow, the Bible is really cool. This really happened. Might not have been a whale like that, but it was a sea monster of some sort, and he gets swallowed up, and he's in the stomach of a fish. Now, if you're in the stomach of a great fish, what would be going through your mind? I'm going to be fish turd. Now, seriously, this is a guy sitting in the middle of this, this belly, of a, and he's going to be digested. He knows what's going to happen to him. But what, what happens to Jonah? He gets burped up onto the beach, and he's wiping that stomach slime off of his body. And he says, salvation is of the Lord. 
See, it's not just a story for kids. This is real. This was real to him. He was going to die. He was going to be digested. And then God moved. And he's sitting on a beach, and he's like, there's no way I could have delivered myself from that fish. God did that. Salvation is of the Lord. How thankful do you think Jonah was that day? I don't know about you, but if that thing was swimming near me and had its mouth open, would that be a little bit scary? I wouldn't want to be swallowed by that thing. Jonah got it. He understood salvation was an act of God that God did on his behalf. When I think of my salvation, what comes to my mind? When you think of your salvation, when you got born again, what comes to your mind? Think back. Don't say anything out loud. This is just between you and the Lord. But what comes to your mind? Is it because your mom wanted you to? Well, my mommy wanted me to, and so I prayed, and I became a Christian. Is it because you're sitting inside of a Sunday school class, and there was this really cool flannel graph presentation? You loved it. And then you became saved. Is that what your thought of salvation is? Is it because that preacher had his tie like so tight that his eyeballs were bulging and he was sweating profusely and he was spitting on the first four rows of the congregation because he was so mad at somebody? Who's he mad at? And he's talking about hell. And you were so terrified, you made a decision. Is that what you think about when you think about your salvation experience? How about walking an aisle? Maybe you walked an aisle and you're thinking, well, I, I went because everybody else did. Oh, there's so much more to salvation than that. I think Jonah truly had a perspective that the Apostle Paul is trying to get the Ephesian believers to grasp when it comes to how they were born again. Can I give you another image so you can see it on the screen? Think about this. You are out to sea. Something goes terribly wrong, and you're floating. And you know you're only going to be able to tread water for so long. You're going to die out there. There's no boat, no helicopter, nothing in sight, and you're out there for hours, and you start to see, like, these fins starting to swim around you, and you're thinking, what is below me in this dark, deep water? You're thinking, it's just a matter of time, and I'm going to be dead. And then over the horizon comes the Coast Guard. And this helicopter lifts you up out of that situation. How are you going to feel towards them when you get into that helicopter? What would you do? I think all of us would be like, thank you so much. Thank you for saving me. Is this not what we should have towards the Lord Jesus because he saved us from our sins? And Paul is wanting them to grasp that. He says in verse 9, to make known the mystery of his will. Someone at our harvest group recently said that a lot of these things are mysteries, and they are mysteries. Selection is a mystery in some way. Salvation really is a mystery in some way. But the mystery is being made known. Maybe it's being made known to one of you today that's not a Christian, and the Holy Spirit is moving upon you. We pray that that happens. Number three, and finally, let's talk about succession, verses 11 to 14. Let me give you a definition. The right 
and the process by which one succeeds to the estate of another. Well, we could also say it like this. You're next in line. You're next in line. Verse 11, if you'll look at it, Paul says this. In him, being Jesus, we have obtained a what? An inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. At the end of verse 14, he calls it our inheritance. The word means to receive a portion or possessions or even property. The greatest inheritance ever given, those who had been in succession to receive the inheritance in our country, was received by some family members by the last name of Walton. And you might have shopped in his retail store a time or two. Sam Walton, Walmart, right? $151 billion they inherited. Like the top 20 billionaires in this country, I think like 17 of them are Walmart or Walton family members. You're saying that? That is an inheritance I would not reject. But Paul's saying something here that goes even beyond money and wealth. That we have received this inheritance. I love these verses. You'll see them on the screen. Colossians 3.24 says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now the question would be, is the inheritance now or is the inheritance in eternity? I think it's both. I think there is an inheritance now. The things that Jesus has given us because he died for us and we receive that salvation, then we are, in, in, we are next in line. So Jesus is then giving me and giving you and his church all of these, what Paul calls, blessings. Here's another verse. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Obviously, the word eternal there would give us an indication of part of this inheritance. Since the death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. One more. 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's talking about our salvation. And it's an inheritance. I just said this to the Lord recently. I said, Lord, everything that you have given me, I want. Have you ever asked the Lord for that? You're thinking, well, that's selfish to do that. That's not really selfish. I thought that was selfish for a long time. Then I said in prayer, I said, God, give me everything that you have given me. I want it. I want it. I want the gifts. I want all the gifts. I want all of the inheritance. And that pleases the Father. Christians are pushing back on it. Well, no, I'll just take this little thing over here. No, ask for it all. It's already been given to you. You just need to realize how much of it has been given to you. It's an amazing truth. Paul goes on in our text, and he talks about sealing. There's a sealing that has happened. It's a very important little word there. It means ownership or security. There's a permanency about the sealing, and the sealing comes through the Spirit of God. So when you were born again and you repent and trust in Christ, the Spirit came to live within you, and that is a guarantee that the inheritance is yours. It's a permanent thing. It means you're, you're owned by God. It means you're secure. That's what that word means, that we're sealed. And so there would be 
important documents and things of that nature where people would communicate in a king or there'd be a royal seal that they would put some wax on that scroll and then they would have an insignia on their ring and they would seal it. That would be kind of what we're talking about here. The Spirit of God has sealed you in your salvation. It's an inheritance you're going to experience now and you're going to experience in the eternity. So I'm going to encourage you to ask the Lord for it all. At the end of our verses, verse 14, you'll notice it's to the praise of his glory. Do you see that? We would call that at harvest vertical. It's all about praising God and giving glory to him. So we have 202 words from verses 3 down to verse 14. 202 words on how God builds his church. I would say that Paul experienced spiritual happiness. So if you're going through some depression, which is something that I have faced on occasion, if you're going through some anxiety, which I have faced on occasion, all of those things we all face, right? Try going back to God selected you. He chose you from before the foundation of the world. Try going back to your salvation and looking at how spectacular that was. And then look at the inheritance. You're next in line to receive everything that Jesus promised. If you start moving that stuff through your mind and your heart and you start worshiping in and through that, you're going to find that your happiness quotient, or it's going it's to rise no matter your circumstance. Can we stand to our feet? Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you did. Think of Jonah again. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us, it's of you. You're the one that did this, Father, from eternity past. You chose a people unto yourself, and Jesus, you came on mission to die, and your mission was a success. We thank you for that. We thank you for salvation that is in Christ alone, by grace alone. We thank you that we have an inheritance. We don't need $151 billion when we have you, when we have eternity with you, when we have all of the resources. Peter said, that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness, everything. And so your word says to us, God, that we have all spiritual blessings. We're not without. So why are we struggling so much? We, we act like we're without. We're in lack. We're not in lack. We've been lavished. We've, it's been poured out on us. It's sumptuously extravagant, our salvation and what you, Holy Spirit, have done in our life by sealing it. We're owned by you. It's permanent. Nothing can break it. Nothing can separate it. God, we pray that you would help us to realize more than ever that we can have spiritual happiness no matter the circumstance. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray for the younger and the older in this room right now, listening by our website, that you would help them to realize afresh and anew, these great truths. No matter what they're going through, it's a cancer situation or it's a, a relationship breakdown or maybe it's a wayward son or daughter and it's really weighing them down. May happiness come to their heart because they know that they've been selected by you, saved by you, and they're next in line to receive everything us to realize more too than ever that we really don't deserve all of this. 
This isn't because we're good looking. It's not because we're good at sports in high school or we have a good job, we're successful. It's nothing of that nature. It's something in the, the wisdom of God, in your purposes, in your determinate purposes, where you're choosing a people unto yourself. And you were gracious to us, but we didn't deserve any of it. It is more than I deserve. Isn't it true, church? It's more than we deserve. Can we sing this song? More than I deserve. As a way of saying thank you, Jesus. Let's sing together.